Welcome to another edition of TrekCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council, coming at you from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, we're bringing you the first installment of a two-part series on construction fraud featuring Paul Greilich and Tony Allman of Baker Tilly. They talk about what constitutes construction fraud, the project conditions that make construction fraud possible, primarily in the contracting and staffing process and how to detect construction fraud in the projects your firms are working on. If you'd like to learn more about Baker Tilly, please log on to bakertilly.com backslash construction, all that and more in just a bit. As always, subscribe to TrekCast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on most of the major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can also follow the Real Estate Council on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn to stay up to date on everything we've got going on. If you like what you hear on today's episode and you've got an idea for a future topic or guest, please email me at bsanantonio at recouncil.com or reach out to Kelsey Holmes at kholmes at recouncil.com. We will link to both of those emails in the show notes and on the Trekwire blog over at recouncil.com. And now, here's Paul Greilich and Tony Allman of Baker Tilly right here on TrekCast. Welcome, Tony. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you about construction fraud. It's really an occurrence that happens on so many construction projects, and it's important to owners to recognize it and put good preventive controls in place so they can protect their assets during the construction process. Thank you. Um, You know, I think people have a good relative sense of what what fraud is, um, but Really, I don't know when you get down to it, construction fraud and what types of different types of construction fraud are there. Can you explain a little bit more about that to us? Certainly. Fraud comes in a number of different forms. Some are commonly recognized. Others are more situational in their conditions. Uh, Let's talk about the, the nine primary forms of construction fraud as we experience them. Uh, and helping our clients manage risk. Uh, The first is what would commonly be called as billing fraud. Uh, Those situations where uh, a contractor or a supplier is fraudulently preparing invoices that are overstating quantities, perhaps overstating the billing rates that were agreed to in a contract, uh, possibly even just overstating the fact that something was not delivered and they were billing for it without regard to the fact that it hasn't been earned or that they aren't entitled to it. The next, and I think this is one that most people think about when they hear the term construction fraud, is bitter contract rigging. Uh, It's a form of collusion between a contractor and a supplier or or a subcontractor. Uh, And in these situations, you've got two or more parties working together to create a situation where favoritism is being applied so that one or more very specific contractors are being awarded work without regard to qualifications, uh, quality of work, uh, or adherence with policy procedures, uh, or even more specifically those organizations that are subject to awarding to lowest bid. In uh, those kinds of bid rigging situations, uh, these are rather difficult to detect, uh, 
they do exist. Um, and an owner has to be on the alert for making sure that, that they are using good qualified subcontractors as part of their construction process. Um, the next is bribery and corruption. Uh, the, the types of transactions that take place between um, influential people and, and an ability to get the project done. Uh, these are the kinds of situations that require uh, sometimes favors or, or the exchange of monetary or non-monetary value uh, to ensure that a project is going to be done on a timely basis or to gain some sort of favoritism from a person of authority within a community uh, or, or within a uh, jurisdiction that is requiring authorization. Tony, have you um, run into this and had to walk contractors through these scenarios before? In fact, we have. Um, th there are some cities around the United States that are very complex to get projects, uh, projects built uh, very complicated urban areas that require uh, cooperation from many local officials in order for a project to be successful. Um, and and it, it's not unusual that those local officials are going to look for a favor. Uh, that favor may be in the form of political contributions. Uh, it may be in the form of uh, perhaps some discounted services or perhaps maybe they're even going to be looking for advantageous pricing that comes out of the facility that's being built. If this is going to be a high-rise luxury condominium, maybe they're going to be looking for some preferred pricing on buying a condo for themselves. Uh, so it can occur in a lot of different ways. The uh, and, and in fact, we do experience it. Uh, we try very hard to bring to everyone's attention that when these situations occur, that they have an obligation to identify them and try and prevent them. Uh, however, even even in the very best of situations, it can be uh, extremely challenging for an owner, developer, or contractor to avoid the uh, kinds of uh, events that require some kind of favor being paid to a local official. Wow. Those seem like very difficult situations for sure. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and the fact is these kinds of things are untraceable. So from an auditor's perspective, uh, while we can suspect something is happening, it becomes incredibly difficult to document and produce actionable evidence uh, that would enable uh, law enforcement or a prosecutor to do something about it. I mean, ultimately, does it impact your contract costs? It absolutely does. Um, it, it's probably not going to be financially material to the overall construction project, uh, unless, of course, you don't do it. And while we may see a fractional increase in cost to have to pay for these kinds of favoritisms, uh, the cost of not participating in them usually means substantial delays to a project, mm. uh, which can be far more costly than the uh, moderate cost of uh, paying for favoritism or bribery. Okay. All right. Thanks. We're not encouraging it, 
Uh, certainly we're not uh, going to sit here and say that this is the best way and the right way to do projects. Uh, what we're suggesting is that you have to approach all projects with your eyes wide open and consequently the uh, organizations that you're working with, you want to make sure that you're working with those that have uh, that operate it with the highest levels of integrity. And that's really the best way to control those uh, kinds of situations. One of the, 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 the more challenging ones that we see uh, contractors and owners having to deal with are the fictitious vendors. Uh, and this is where perhaps uh, one person in an accounts payable department is unhappy with their situation and they are setting up a fictitious vendor in an accounts payable system. And on a hundred million dollar project, uh, it wouldn't be unheard of to see a 10 or 15 or $20,000 uh, subconsultant or, or supplier charged to the project. And at a hundred million dollars, a $15,000 invoice might not even be detectable. Uh, it's not going to exceed the financial materiality uh, levels of the project. It probably is going to be within the authorization matrix of a project manager. Uh, so the fact is, it would be relatively easy to get approval to pay a ten or fifteen thousand dollar invoice to a fictitious vendor. Is this uh, similar to billing fraud? Um, I, I would say it, it, it's certainly related because ultimately it's going to get passed along to the owner or the developer of the project through the billing process. The significant difference here is billing fraud is a coordinated effort with intent to deceive by the company to collect more money from, a from the owner than they're entitled to. Where a fictitious vendor is not usually a coordinated effort by the, by the contractor themselves, but a, a singular effort by an individual to personally profit from the construction project. Um, so, so the difference here is not only is the owner being harmed by a fictitious vendor, but so is the contractor. Uh, they're not participating in this deception. Um, and, and in fact, it, it, it's exposing not only the weaknesses of their control systems, uh, but it's also potentially damaging to their professional reputation. Uh, so, so both organizations are at risk here, where when we talk about billing fraud, that's really a, a, a concentrated effort um, by the organization to collect more money than they're entitled to. Uh, and I, one thing it's, it's worth talking about when we, we talk about billing fraud, uh, people do make mistakes. On a 50 or $100 million project, the number of transactions that are processed are in the thousands of transactions in a job cost ledger. Errors are going to be made. This is, this is just human nature. Uh, people will transpose numbers. Uh, people will accidentally approve things twice. Errors do get made. Errors are not fraud. Fraud is the actual intent to deceive a party and to steal, in our cases we're talking about money, to steal money from one party or another. Uh, where an error is something that it happens, is identified, and is usually reconciled and then rectified between the parties. When we talk about uh, projects and, and cost management, uh, probably the most 
famous uh, form of project change is the actual change order itself. Uh, commonly and often comically referred to as the greatest profit center of a construction project, uh, change order management is critically important to all projects. Uh, changes to the contract value is how you would define change order. Change orders are uh, driven from often the need of an owner to change the scope of the project. Perhaps they decided to add square footage to the project or that they decided that they wanted a different kind of heating and air conditioning system that was going to be uh, more favorable to their work environment. Uh, change orders in themselves are not a bad thing. Change orders in themselves are not fraud. Uh, however, when the parties that are putting together the change orders are putting them together in a way to either A, duplicate scope that is already part of the original specifications of the project. So for instance, uh, a good and well-designed project would have accommodated for the utilities being brought into the building and a mechanical room being built. A change order for a mechanical room is likely to be fraudulent because already the specifications would have included that change order I'm sorry, the, the specifications for the mechanical room already in your base price of the project. So to put through a change order for a mechanical room is trying to get the owner to pay for it twice. Uh, that's unnecessary and quite frankly, that's fraud. Furthermore, the pricing mechanisms that can go into a change order also lend itself to potential fraudulent activities. Uh, taking markups that they're not entitled to, inflating the amount of labor hours that it takes to get the work done, uh, inflating the cost per labor hour outside of the contract values, all of these are fraudulent activities. The difference here again between an error and fraud, errors can take place, we don't see it on a consistent basis. Uh, however, fraudulent activity uh, is usually uh, egregious by the amount of additional profit that's being taken. Furthermore, we're seeing it as a pattern of behavior. It doesn't happen on just one change order, but it happens on multiple change orders. Are change orders sometimes submitted based on estimates? And how should one deal? Change orders are, are time sensitive. No one can afford to have a crew standing in the field idle for, for the duration uh, of a decision-making process. Therefore, it, it's a very good idea to, to act on an estimated cost for a change order. However, there should be a true-up process once the real costs have been identified. And that true-up process then either is going to debit or credit the owner for the actual cost of the change order. Uh, it's a very fair process. It allows uh, not only the contractor to uh, move at an efficient pace and, and make good decisions and keep people working, but it also empowers the owner to take the unnecessary time to analyze the cost of the change order uh, and, and to act accordingly. 
uh, we think is probably one of the more responsible ways of handling change orders because that way everybody uh, is, is empowered to fulfill their responsibilities without any one party having too much leverage over the other. Just as long as you're doubling back and <clears throat> obtaining the necessary documentation, um, I could just see how that might be a bit of a best messy process at times, um, understanding the scope and ultimately uh, the cost as things continue to evolve. But Exactly. So a few of our other areas, uh, theft or, or uh, substitution of, of materials during the construction process. Uh, if someone was to go out to the job site and drive away with 10 pallets full of lumber, uh, certainly that kind of theft occurs. Uh, and most contractors are very diligent about putting security in place to prevent that from happening, but it can't happen. The more subtle uh, events is the material substitution. When the expectation is that someone was going to build a wall with a two by six, and they actually build it with a two by four, and it gets hidden behind the drywall so it becomes undetectable to the owner. So then the only way to identify these kinds of items is to reconcile the actual purchase orders with the construction specifications. Okay. Uh, so something may be built to, to, to the local building code, but it hasn't necessarily been built to the specifications that were agreed upon. And it's those specifications that the, the trade and craft pricing was going to be based. So if someone is substituting a lesser quality or lesser expensive material for their construction process, they've effectively cheated the, the prime contractor and the owner from the delivery of what was originally contracted for. Right. Uh, false representation. Uh, this is that the point of someone saying that they're capable of doing something and not really having the ability to, to deliver on it. Contract guaranteed maximum price credit. Uh, again, here, there are opportunities within a construction project for an owner to recover uh, the cost of excess materials, uh, the cost of recyclable materials, uh, in a major remodel or a rehabilitation of a building, the deconstruction process is going to separate precious metals from debris, uh, copper, brass, aluminum. Uh, in some cases, in really old buildings, we even find that the wiring in the building is silver. Uh, and in these cases, someone's going to take those precious metals or semi-precious metals to the recycling center and get paid for them. Uh, and, and the owner is really entitled to, to those credits. But failure to share those credits or to deduct them from the cost of maybe the waste management is another source of fraud. If I had a look at the area today, though, that is maybe the most disturbing uh, is electronic fraud. Uh, as we see construction projects taking advantage of electronic data collection, electronic recording, um, owners and contractors working more closely together to integrate uh, the, the automation of invoice payments, uh, the automation of 
building specification generation. We see the opportunities for electronic fraud growing exponentially. Uh, probably the, the, the most popular uh, electronic fraud scenario today is someone set, setting up, someone calling into an accounts payable department and representing themselves as the contractor and lying to an owner that the banking relationship has changed. And now that they, they are trying to change the bank, they're gonna change the routing numbers, change the account numbers, and an unsuspecting accounts payable department that doesn't confirm this may find themselves having changed all of this electronic information and the next multi-million dollar payment to that contractor gets routed to uh, a false, well, actually it's a lie, but it's, it's an incorrect bank account where now this perpetrator is able to collect several million dollars, very quickly move it out of that account and move it offshore uh, preventing really any ability to recover those costs. And it may take as many as 60 or 90 days before that person is detected. Uh, and on a very large project, it's not unusual for a single month payment to be as much as 10, 12, or $15 million. And if it happens for perhaps three months in a row, uh, that person can very quickly collect 40, 50, $60 million and then disappear before there's any opportunity to pursue them. Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, I just have a couple more questions here as we uh, wrap up. Um, I don't know what the perception is, but I think for me, you know, I've heard that it seems like fraud may be more limited to larger projects is what I've heard. But does it impact uh, smaller maintenance type projects as well? Should owners be aware? more fraud on maintenance projects than we do on the big capital projects. The reason for that is one, because the projects are smaller, the, there's a tendency for them to uh, not get as much attention as a big project does. So uh, a, a $10,000 project uh, that should have cost 7500 goes undetected. And there's a lot of opportunity for collusion between um, maintenance people and service providers. But, it, but, but for it to happen, um, really it takes collusion because there's gotta be someone at the owner's side, perhaps a project manager or uh, an accounts payable person who is coordinating with a service provider on the other end to, to make to make that collection happen and to defraud the owner. Okay, so that segues well to my last question. Just what kind of conditions need to exist? What kind of environment um, do we have here that leads to fraud and, and what should owners be aware of? And we're gonna get more into preventing and responding to fraud in our next session, but Talk a little bit about the environments that you sometimes see when fraud exists. The number one is when the project controls are weak. Uh, and weak project controls can be identified either as uh, inexperienced personnel to manage the project, uh, not enough people to manage the project, uh, 
Okay. Perhaps it's also a lack of qualified personnel uh, on the contractor side. The contractor may have overextended themselves on the project. So those are some pretty big red flags that we would look at to, to ask what can we do to help mitigate risk before the project begins. Okay. Well, thank you, Tony. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Paul. I'd like to thank Paul and Tony from Baker Tilly for taking the time to chat with us about the risks associated with construction fraud. Subscribe to TrackCast and catch the second part of their conversation on Monday, December 23rd. Also remember to follow us on social media as well. And until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.